0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Butter With That. That's a podcast where some friends get together in Philadelphia to talk about some movies. Uh, I am joined, as always, thankfully, by my cohorts here, uh, Christine, Connor, and Sam. uh, And I'm Dave. Uh, we are jumping into a new theme after having just celebrated our three-year anniversary. It's a pretty special episode where we each kind of went back and reviewed and revisited some movies that we had either seen early on into the podcast or had not caught in their rotation. So some interesting uh, interesting thoughts to mine there, uh, especially as contrasted to the those early episodes. So I would suggest listening to both. Before we begin, of course, we want to thank the Movie John Podcast Network for hosting us as always. A uh, really great suite of podcasts, all of them movie-based and all of them Philadelphia-based that you can check out through moviejohn.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Before we dive into this new theme, I just wanted to to go around the horn, check in with everybody and see how everybody's doing. And uh, also, if anybody's seen anything that has really stood out to them lately.
1: This is totally unrelated, but I always thought the phrase around the horn was funny. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. Yeah, there's like a whole ESPN show about, you know, like with as the conceit, I don't know, just... Totally off track, but that's sort of the day it's and the week it's been for me, just feeling very off track. I haven't seen too, too much. Uh, I did see Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings in theaters, um, the newest Marvel movie, which I thoroughly enjoyed. It was sort of nice to have a theatrical experience again. The action was um, pretty awesome. Definitely maybe the best action in any Marvel movie. Certainly, like, lots of one takes and, like, holding the camera steady and not cutting away every five seconds, which is much appreciated. And a few different martial arts styles as well, which is always great to have in a martial arts movie. Um, so, yeah, I definitely recommend Shang-Chi. Nice. And that high watermark, uh, as far as
0: compliments of action go, for the Marvel franchise. So,
1: Hopefully it's up from here. Um,
2: I uh, watched a movie recently called The Naked City, which is an old film? I think at the date is 1948. Uh, Jules Dassin. Um, it's 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 just like a black and white 40s film about a crime that happens in New York, and this detective and his partners have to figure it out. the The plot's pretty kind of basic uh, or straightforward, but the shots. This movie is so wonderful because it just is con- has constant shots of 40s New York City. And it's really a wonderful just like footage archive of that very specific period of time. And I don't think the production uh, was budget was very big, but somehow they were managed to get footage from like every borough, from every angle. Everything was on location shooting. And it was just such a wonder and pleasure to watch uh, and the, the story, I, I didn't want to undercut it. It is the actual detective part uh, is is wonderful and like really fun to follow. But I would also recommend it for just all of this amazing footage of 40s New York. And it takes time to step away from the main storyline and to just have shots of people living their lives and some like neighborhood shots. And there's a voiceover like at the beginning, that's like, Mary here works at a diner. Look as Mary serves the customers. Mary is tired. You know, it's like like, kind of hokey, but it really is just a wonderful little glimpse to all of these pockets of New York City. Um, And the whole point is that this murder is like one tiny story in a massive city. And the movie does such a wonderful job of showing the immensity and the, the popul- like, immense population and just the hubbub of 40s New York uh, and then narrows its focus on this one story. And so I, I, I highly, recommend, uh, highly recommend it. It was a really fun, fun watch.
0: Sounds like a very cool metropolitan time capsule sort of thing. It
2: truly, truly is. I, that's a great
0: way of putting it. Very cool. How about you, Sam?
2: I wish I had something to talk about. I've
3: been so busy that the only things I've been seeing or watching is the inside of my eyelids. And even that has not been enough. So... Um, I'm interested to hear what everybody's been watching. So maybe I can try to find something to do um, other than work lately. Uh, but you know what's funny? I have not been watching the mummy every night going to bed. It's like very like strange, but the call has been something else. So I've been watching um, or at least just like putting speed on every night. So it's it's. Uh, fascinating that those are the two movies that i go to but speaking of keanu the matrix trailer looks really great and i just want great things for keanu always and it looks 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 like it's gonna be
2: great or i hope it's like it's like john wick was just plopped into the matrix like, scary. he just looks like John Wick. It's like, this isn't Neo. This is Keanu trying to film two movies at once. <laughs> the, I'm not, the trailer looks so, ex- like, awesome. I'm so excited. So they're are
3: they're operating on the idea that, like, two and three didn't happen?
0: No. It seems as though it's pr- a pretty established continuance and not a reboot. And is oh. really rooted in kind of the way that the third movie ends, in a way as far as what I can tell. Uh, So it does sound like it's gonna be continuing the story. So I suppose folks will have to go back and watch those, which is uh, unfortunate in my opinion, but I mean, you know, we'll see. Uh, And also it does look interesting in the sense that I don't think it looks like other Matrix movies, like the kind of the shooting style and the aesthetic and everything else, the production design and everything kind of has a different feel. So uh, I'm looking forward to it, uh, but I'm cautiously optimistic.
1: Fair enough. I think no matter how the Matrix Resurrections turns out, there'll be probably hours of of stuff for us to talk about if we all go see it. Yeah, <laughs> and to break down and to debate over.
2: I mean, the trailer is so fun. The use of the Jeff- Jefferson Airplane song, like, mm-hmm. ev- like it's in sync, and everything is just falling into place. Whoever cut that trailer is brilliant.
0: And also sewing in the iconic Matrix theme into that melody, which is pretty sharp. Nice. Well, really quickly, Sam, uh, I imagine then that you have not made progress on Neon Genesis Evangelion. Just checking in.
3: Yeah, you know, like being so busy in my brain being fried, uh, I have to say that's not what I was going to in those moments of comfort.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. You're so close to meeting Asuka, though. I'm very excited. Well, that was, uh, you know, nice to go around the horn, by the way, the etymology of around the horn, uh, it turns out is, uh, in the days of tall ships, any sailor who sailed around Cape horn was entitled to spit to windward. Um, so that's going, that's going around the horn.
3: I'm going to ask Tom about this tomorrow. (laughs)
0: Tell me
3: a little bit more about going around
0: the horn. So that of course then brings us to the meat of today's episode. And, uh, A new theme, uh, something we've been excited about for kind of a while now, or at the very least I have in associating it with the film that I've selected. uh, That would be our new theme, which is production nightmares, Uh, sort of taking on films that had uh, either a really troubled production history, whether good or bad, or films that uh, really kind of fell apart as a result of uh, irresponsible production, let's say, which I think is a pretty good summary of what we're gonna be getting into today. My selection was 1995s or 2001s, depending upon a lot of information that you'll get soon. It's a RD Rob film called Don's Plum. Uh, Now, a lot of people have not heard of that film, and for good reason, especially in the United States and Canada, which is something that we'll be covering at length as we continue talking about it. Uh, It's a pretty off-the-beaten-path indie film that, uh, again, not a lot of people know about, but those that know the troubled production history uh, that we're about to teach you and walk you through know that it is a pretty exceptional story and a... A pretty wild one. Going around the horn, once again, that was just an instinct. Now it's just in there. I'm just going to go spit into the wind really quick. We've got uh, everybody here, and I think of the four of us, it's just Christine and I who have seen the film, correct? Yeah, I'm getting nods. And I think that, by the way, kind of at my urging, I did sort of say when outlining the movie that uh, I felt it was not a good film, uh, but that its history was interesting. Christine, that having been said, uh, we're going to be talking about the movie a little bit. Uh, we're more going to be diving into sort of a rundown of how this all unfolded. Uh, but before we get to that, what what was your takeaway from Don's Plum? What did you think of the movie with uh, none of the establishing context going into it?
2: Um, I mean, it's terrible, but I brought up... <laughs> I brought up Naked City because I I think I've been sort of in this mode right now of loving to watch movies that feel so specific to a very particular place and time. And I think Don's Plum is an example of like an irreplicable like moment in the mid-90s into 2001 with a very specific group of people, like all like the young people, like who would become A-list like actors. And then some, okay, I'll also be totally honest. I had no idea Jenny Lewis was in this. And then I like Hmm. freaked out and I was like, oh, just to be transported back to like a time when Jenny Lewis was so young and like seeing, I mean, like I would want a better role for her, but- I And then I read, I was like, oh shit, a Rilo Kylie song ends the whole, movie. I don't know, it was also just taking me back. Uh, and so there were lo- like amazing parts that I loved just to have little nostalgic glimmers of like a, another era. And just to see Leonardo DiCaprio play such an asshole, I think is is a wonder to behold. And I think more people should witness it because it's probably what he was like as a real person, but I guess we're going to learn all about the backstory. I know nothing besides what I just explained. So Dave, I'm so excited to have you dive deep into the, uh, to the lore uh, of this
0: film and Hollywood lore. It certainly is. We're going to be getting into a a few different chapters of the film's history tonight. Uh, the first chapter being, um, something of a prologue sort of set the stage because to know how crazy all of this was and, and how it all, unraveled, it's important to know some of the key players and especially their motivations. So to begin with, uh, we have our prologue, which I just uh, simply titled, Leo and Toby. Now, both breaking into the industry as child actors, Leonardo DiCaprio and Toby McGuire were no strangers to each other within casting calls and auditions. Uh, As DiCaprio told Esquire, while his mother was driving through LA, he recognized Toby from a past audition, going on to say, quote, I literally jumped out of the car. I was like, Toby, Toby, hey, hey. And he was like, oh yeah, I know you, you're that guy. But I just made him my pal. When I want someone to be my friend, I just make them my friend, end quote. The two young actors formed a very close bond, both as industry newcomers without formal training, but also on a deeper level as they were both raised by single mothers the pair would audition for the same roles often, but there were at the time never any hard feelings about who would ultimately be cast. In fact, they both auditioned for a 1990 TV adaptation of *Parenthood*, which uh, DiCaprio landed the leading role of, but pushed for McGuire to be involved in some capacity, and that got him a handful of lines. Uh, after landing the lead in 1992's *This Boy's Life* over McGuire, DiCaprio seemingly stepped in to get McGuire a role uh, of the role of Chuck. Uh, that being DiCaprio's character's best friend. And uh, again, you know, though they remained very close, professionally and competitively speaking, it was already clear kind of at the onset that DiCaprio was casting a long shadow over Maguire's career aspirations. So that then brings us to chapter one, chapter one being the posse. So this is where things get pretty weird. <laughs> So uh, probably the best source on this that I, I uncovered was Nancy Jo Sales' uh, 1999, I believe, article for New York Magazine entitled Leo, Prince of the City. Uh, and that goes on to explain, quote, even before there was Leo mania, Leo always traveled with his pack of devotees, known in Hollywood circles as the Pussy Posse. They're all about seeing the girls, said a magazine photographer in New York who once had to sneak Leo and the boys, then the uninvited, into a Victoria's Secret event the posse as it was sort of included uh mainstays like leo dicaprio as we said his longtime friend toby mcguire but also actors lucas haas jay ferguson kevin Connolly, and scott bloom uh director harmony corinne and uh fledgling magician and uh rising star david blaine david blaine is. david blaine he said i the did mix. not know that <laughs> yeah david blaine Part of the, and apologies, I'm going to have to say it a lot, folks, the Pussy Posse, as they were termed. And as far as that name, uh, there's some debate as to who came up with it and where it originated. Uh, we're going to get to that in a second. But in just in general, the Posse was known within the industry as a group of kind of loudmouth gadabouts who would cruise the town for women, occasionally brawling with security, and basically never tipping anyone. As concerns the name, whether sales coined the name for the group herself uh, in that revealing write-up or the name was self-assigned, the members of the group have since shared their thoughts on the group's moniker and reputation over the years. Uh, These are some testimonials that they themselves provided when interviewed about the subject uh, in an oral history that was conducted a few years ago. Toby Maguire said that, The posse really started as a group of young sons of single mothers hanging out between auditions, trying to make sense of being an adolescent in this weird industry. The pussy stuff was just a natural progression. Uh, Kevin Connolly added, uh, anyone who tells you that the posse was just about fucking wasn't there. Uh, Jay Ferguson, I'd say it was mostly about getting girls to sleep with us. (laughs) So some conflicting reports. Kevin Connolly even catches himself and then uh, this is him again. Can I go back a second? and apologies here folks, the Pussy Posse was formed to chase pussy and then have sex with it, definitely. But I think a lot of us were chasing something else. Let me rephrase. I'll tell you what it was about. Friendship, solidarity, and good times between a close-knit group of guys. And sometimes there was a girl there too. Uh, Magician David Blaine added, I always thought the name was kind of fucking lame. I wanted us to be called The Guild.
3: (laughs) That's the worst. I don't know why that's the worst. Because Common that like is.
2: still is. It's like, oh, if we if we uh, dump a shit of sophistication on it, it won't be shit, and it's it's still shit.
0: Well, his justification for the idea was that we were all masters of our craft. Some of us more so, or much more so than others.
2: <laughs> Not everyone could become what I became, a <laughs> list magician. <laughs>
0: And then finally, Maguire, uh, his his final little note was, I know it's not really acceptable now, but I still get a kick out of it. I mean, say it out loud. Pussy posse. It's preposterous. A pause. Still messed up, though. I have kids.
2: (laughs) Wait, wait, when was this? When were these interviews conducted?
0: I think these were like the mid-2000s. So like a little bit after the group had, sort, so to to speak, kind of disbanded or or, uh, gone about their separate careers. And we're looking back on their uh, fond memories. But uh, as infamous as their reputation as an upstart group of party crashers was, uh, there was obviously something more to the group as Andrew Gutitero writes for Complex, quote, it's relatively easy to play armchair psychologist and analyze the way DiCaprio built his friend group, how to turn potential enemies into friendly and perhaps unaware competitors, how this man with an absentee father made a point of crafting a posse of men, men who would have an intricate understanding of his life experiences, the fame, the way Hollywood works, the women, uh, how he'd give this group every part of himself and in turn, let it create an impenetrable bubble around him. And this was in a lot of ways, pretty true. Uh, The posse kind of stepped in as sort of Leo's orbit, Connolly acting as a sort of self-styled security for the group while others would carry Leo's money for him things like that. Uh, according to a fellow actor, though, and a friend of the group, uh, the posse, quote, used to see each other in auditions all the time, and a little competition rose up between them. They were always betting on who would blow up first. Toby was into more of Tom Hanks' track. Leo was modeling his career after Nicholson and De Niro, and quote, the Titanic stuff caused a bit of an identity crisis. Some of them had completely lost their careers. All they do now is hang out with Leo. So that's a bit of an insight into what was going on with the posse at the time, uh, that being the early 90s and before the creation of Don's Plum, which we're going to get to in Chapter 3. But I think uh, that's a pretty good summary of the posse and the key players in order to give you some of the idea of where this might be going.
1: I feel like this is destined for some kind of HBO miniseries series in like 40 years, 50 years.
0: There's a pretty good New York Post documentary about it that's about 70 minutes long uh, that I would recommend, called "The Curse of Don's Plum," uh, from which I'll be selecting some information. It's pretty sensationalized, so I try to do so with a grain of salt. But
3: is it bad that, like, my as I'm listening, my inclination is just to tell these people, "Oh, shut up." <laughs> I, don't I don't
0: think know. so. <laughs> I think that's okay. I think okay, that's the good. right response. Good. And that'll lead us then, of course, to Chapter Two. And chapter two is Last Respects and the Saturday Nightclub. So around this time, aspiring playwright and producer Dale Wheatley arrived in L.A. in 1994 with big dreams but zero connections. Uh, He did, however, quickly meet and befriend actor Jeremy Sisto, uh, who introduced Wheatley to the city's nightlife, including parties packed with up-and-coming celebrities and actors. It was at one such party that Wheatley met the posse, as well as R.D. Robb. Uh, himself a former child actor known for his role as Schwartz in A Christmas Story, uh, that being the kid that triple dog dares the other kid to lick the pole. He wound up uh, actually at the time working on a uh, film, was going to be co-directing a film called Last Respects. And this was a film in which a group of students exhume the body of their late mentor and take it to a hotel to pay their last respects rob uh was then courting dicaprio to play the lead role but dicaprio wasn't convinced the script was strong enough wheatley and rob touched up the script over several months and pitched the rewritten script to dicaprio one evening at his home uh dicaprio still rejected the script but that allowed an opportunity for other group hanger on david stutman Another aspiring producer uh, to step in with a pitch of his own for his script, The Saturday Night Club, which had a loose premise uh, that would go on to become Don's Plum. And this really attracted Leo and the other members of the posse because uh, the approach was supposed to be that there was very little script, about 10 pages, and that they would improvise all of their dialogue.
2: Is that still the, is that, was that the ultimate decision for the feature length film like did what we witness with was, was what we witnessed improvised
0: dialogue uh almost entirely improvised dialogue
2: yes. oh shit okay that says so much yes <laughs> oh my god this movie <laughs> holy shit
3: <laughs> was there not one person that just said no don't do it because it feels like that the answer is no
0: Well, at the time, not really on a couple of different complicated fronts. I mean, this was at a time when through things like Miramax uh, or through several different Academy Award nominations, indie filmmakers were really on the rise and it felt like the door was open. So it was sort of an open invitation for people who had a passion for film, uh, were indie filmmakers, and wanted to get involved in the industry to sink their teeth in, present themselves, and make a name for themselves uh, in a way that would be heard and respected perhaps even by the Academy. Um, So in that sense, no, no one told them no, uh, at least at first, but we'll return to that. So to finance the film, David Stuttman approached his writing partner, Todd Beckman, for funding. Eventually, it was his father, uh, the co-creator of the McDonald's Happy Meal, and inventor of the McDonald's Monopoly game, uh, who drew up a loan and fronted the crew 70 grand to make their film. That's gonna be important later. Also important later will be that Stutman, acting as producer, plotted out the distribution and of back end points and residuals, none of which were actually drafted into contracts. Uh, Wheatley recalled, quote, uh, we dropped the ball on the contract side of the game. We believed that we were making a film with our friends and foolishly didn't pay attention to the paperwork. Again, Make sure all this stuff's in your back pocket because it's going to be important later. At this point, Wheatley, Rob, and Stutman and several members of the posse, namely DiCaprio, McGuire, Bloom, and Connolly began to shoot. Uh, with the entirety being improvised dialogue and a two-day shooting schedule, they arrived at what would be conceived as the short film Don's Plum. So that, a bit of a production background, and that brings us then, of course, to the film. Connor, Did you, you say got t- uh,
1: something to say there? Two days? Yes. The shoot is that- going to be two days. Okay, so that was the plan. It
0: was the plan initially, yes. There was going to be okay. two days worth of shooting with Leonardo DiCaprio and the rest of the cast and crew. But as you'll find out, it didn't quite pan
1: out that way. I feel like you, you said like four different kinds of famous last words just in the production, like the pre-production history.
0: <laughs> it's really, they're they're not setting themselves up for this to go well. And in a lot of ways, it doesn't. But of course, that again, it brings us to uh, chapter three. Uh, that being Don's Plum, the actual movie. So I didn't want to get too bogged down in the details or plot points or beats of this movie because it is largely just sort of a slew of improvisation with very little focus. So I suppose I'll just provide a couple different beats to give you folks some context other than Christine so that at least, you know, uh, have a vague idea of what you're dealing with. So Don's Plum, the film, opens with Jeremy Sisto kicking Amber Benson out of his car. Uh, And I do mean literally kicking her out of the car, saying... I'm going to kick you out of my car now because I need to know that with pleasure and with brute force, I got you out of my life. Great way to set a tone for a movie. Uh, Elsewhere at an an empty acid jazz slash burlesque club, uh, singer Toledo Diamond, it's his real name, by the way. Croons to no one as Tobey Maguire tries in vain to pick up women to bring to meet his friends at a diner. Eventually, Meadow Sisto, who is actually pretty good in this movie, agrees. Tobey
2: Maguire is just peak, just adolescent, I don't know, it is just, it is a revelation, honestly, to witness.
0: I mean, I think he's uh, the weakest link in this movie by a I mean, it's
2: horrible. (laughs) And by revelation, by revelation, I mean not his performance. But just that this was caught on camera. Like, I think that this movie like captured something that like is somewhat I think I think this is my assessment of Maguire and DiCaprio, that it's like this horribly unfiltered insight into their lives and like who they were at that very specific point in time. And it is it is rough. It is a rough ride for all of them, but, like, Toby, I just can't. I just was laughing the entire time through all of those scenes, especially as he's trying to get uh, the person that he meets to the diner. Well, I what what's what's her name that
0: I don't remember the character's name. Okay. All
2: right. Meadow Sisto. Oh, Jeremy's sister. Mm hmm. Meadow Sisto getting her to the diner. It is rough. And they're like close-ups of his face and his little lips. It's just so
0: Just a lonesome cowboy waiting for his girl. It's bizarre. He's a cartoon character in this movie.
2: That's the thing. You cannot write what he is doing. (laughs) He is just taking it in a direction that is terrible, but just so sad and so funny. It's truly... Truly a revelation in only those specific
0: ways. Well, we're then introduced also to the rest of the crew, that being Scott Bloom and Jenny Lewis, who just had sex. Bloom convinces her to go to Don's Plum with him. Uh, Maybe I should come with you, Jenny says, because I failed to come with you earlier. (laughs) Um,
2: Her line delivery is so bad. Oh, no, I guess it's, is it improvised? It's
0: improvised. Okay, well,
2: she's like so over it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then we arrive at Don's Plum, an all-night diner where Bloom and Lewis are obnoxiously playing harmonica and discussing grunge versus Bob Dylan. Thank you, Quentin Tarantino, for that. Uh, Eventually, Maguire and Sisto arrive alongside Kevin Connolly and Amber Benson, who he's picked up in his Jeep. Uh, We start getting also little interstitial cutaways, uh, these sort of like confessions that these characters are having talking to themselves in the bathroom mirror which becomes a recurring motif sort of an insight into the character's interiority such as it is leo eventually arrives uh, and joins them immediately offering do you girls masturbate at all you know just trying to get to know you a little bit Uh, they discuss masturbation to varying extents for what feels like a very long time DiCaprio mocks a heavyset woman until Amber Benson takes offense and DiCaprio begins berating her. Uh, he says things like, how about I take my shoe and shove it in your mouth, I'm going to throw a bottle in your face, you goddamn whore, etc. Eventually she storms out in disgust, throws her boots after them at the table, and DiCaprio throws a glass after her. Uh, apparently this scene was the producer's idea because DiCaprio felt after one day shoot in a film with no script that she wasn't a strong enough actor. So they decided to basically harass her out of the movie. At the end of the scene, DiCaprio and Connolly high five.
2: It's so bad, it's it's awful. But and it's It like, feels
0: tactile and real in a horrible way.
2: But uh, so Leo was, yeah, I mean like, it, I feel like it's just an insight into how much of an asshole he was. I mean, they all were, but like, especially DiCaprio.
0: Mm. And an extremely enabling scenario where they are allowed to improvise all their dialogue with no filter because there's no script among amateur filmmakers. All of this is a bad idea.
1: My skin Um, is crawling and I haven't even seen the film.
0: Oh, it goes on. Heather McComb shows up and she joins the crew. Uh, She offers folks Valium and starts feeling Lewis up. Unbeknownst to the crew, outside Don's Plum, hilariously, Amber Benson does get a bit of revenge as she starts smashing Connolly's Jeep with a baseball bat. The crew go on to play Never Have I Ever. DiCaprio outs Bloom as a bisexual and Lewis criticizes him, suggesting that a woman being bisexual is fine, but because of AIDS panic in the early 90s, bisexual men shouldn't date women. So that's in there. A producer and her partner arrive uh, asking to use the back bar. And Connelly talks about uh, screen testing for that producer. Uh, At the group's urging, he approaches her. Uh, She invites him back to her place and he just returns to the table to tell the story. So again, nothing happens. DiCaprio dons some gag big teeth and does some offensive impressions and everyone says bro a lot. Uh, Bloom hilariously starts reading a book in the middle of all this, which is actually pretty funny. DiCaprio then at one point becomes very silent and pensive before revealing that his father killed himself because of his mother's abuse. Uh, the rest of the crew falls silent. Uh, parts parts of this scene play out pretty well dramatically, even though they're entirely unearned, given the context that is built up to it. DiCaprio leaves the table for the back bar and Lewis follows after him. Lewis reveals that her father left and her mother uh, is an addict. Uh, they start making out to a Phantom Planet song and DiCaprio starts undoing his pants to which Lewis rebuffs him and then they berate each other for a while. Back at the table, Connolly and McGuire begin arguing over Connolly pressing DiCaprio until they begin to fight. This spills out into the front of the building and DiCaprio rushes in to break up the melee and insists that they embrace and make up saying, whatever, and remember this line because this is pretty ironic, whatever this is all about, 10 years from now, you know what I'm saying? and so it all dissipates uh they ceremoniously burn Connolly's bowling jacket for some reason and then wander off into the morning light while rilo kiley's go ahead plays us out and then there is also one actually kind of funny uh mid-credit cutback sequence where Connolly discovers his smashed up jeep maybe the one funny moment of the movie Um, and that's pretty much don's plum unless christine you have anything to add <laughs>
2: I have no additional insights, other than it is uh, is bizarre, and something I'd never heard of, like I'd never heard of this. and I think it's just, yeah, a talk about an unsafe production like scenario, yep. but it is like, and and I totally understand why none of these performers would probably ever want to like have this scene. Uh, but it like it just captures a very, very specific moment in time (laughs) and a very specific crew of people. And I think your backstory on like, I didn't know anything about DiCaprio's crew, that that was all a real thing, but now it explains so much and how he, yeah.
0: And how it's interesting too, because like, I don't, I don't mind. In fact, I I tend to favor movies with despicable characters, but Everything about this suggests that that's not what's happening, that this is at least a shaded reflection of who they
1: actually are.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's
0: this
1: feels like a 24 hour theater production where kids join thinking that this would be like a stupid thing to do. And then they just go full steam ahead with whatever idea comes off the top of their head. And everybody just sits in the theater uncomfortable for the whole length of the 24 hour play.
0: It's like, this is the conversation that you have with your friends when you've all been drinking and you say to yourself, and this is hopefully not calling the kettle too black here, but like, man, this would make a great podcast. 90% of the time, that's not (laughs) true. And this is pretty good proof of that, I think.
2: But I think it also, it also just captures problematic, like enabling of that entire industry. Like, and it, it still exists today. And I, and I think it, the fact that this movie could go forward and the fact that people agreed to it and that it's just like, you have people of all ages involved in this production. And there are so many, so many moments where somebody could have been like, and, and cut. And then as we talked about earlier, it's just sort of this enabling cycle.
0: It becomes kind of an echo chamber of unchecked performance and a lack of direction. So that, but that, yeah, that in essence is the movie. I mean, that brings us then of course, to chapter four, which is the fallout. Uh, This is easily the most ridiculous and intense portion of the story, I would say, and pretty illuminating. It really kind of sheds a light on uh, how at a time when uh, 90s indie films were really becoming popular mainstream culture, when people were making names for themselves while being industry outsiders, this is an example of the industry biting back in a lot of meaningful ways, and perhaps not without good reason. So after feeling enthused about the edited footage, Wheatley and Rob, uh, the director and co-director slash screenwriter, uh, as, as, as much as he was, felt that there was much more to Don's Plum and that it could, in fact, become a feature film. Uh, originally, it was going to be a short film. They had the idea that we were going to make this film in two days, uh, and it'll just be what we get. But they they felt that the material upon reviewing it was strong enough uh, that they could add to this movie. So they arranged for the cast, except for DiCaprio, but explicitly with Tobey Maguire, to return to shoot several pickup shots, extending the film's runtime from a short to an official feature. Are those? Uh, I'm so sorry to interrupt. Are those the bathroom scenes where they're looking in the mirror? I think a lot of them are the bathroom scenes, and all of it, uh, all of the beginning with Maguire, as is an added second shoot
2: these scenes cut like in the middle of like some tense moments, it'll cut to people looking at themselves in the mirror in the bathroom and like talking to them be like, this explains all of my problems like basically revealing life details. It's just a shows a very poor screenplay when like people are having to like explain details of their lives as they're standing in front of a mirror reflecting on their past. It's
0: rough and an unearned sense of like introspection and sentimentality to these characters who are just on their face, disgusting. Like it tries to sew in all sorts of narratives that there's an explanation for why they're this way, but it seems as though they're just kind of assholes. So when later asked uh, in his deposition, if uh, McGuire ever told DiCaprio of his returning for a second shoot, McGuire testified, quote, I don't think so. Uh, maybe, Maybe they said we'd had enough to cut a film over 70 minutes, or I don't remember, 80 minutes. I don't remember, end quote. DiCaprio was informed about the extended shoot and the possibility of a feature cut and was immediately apprehensive, and understandably so. According to Wheatley, he and Rob promised that if the finished edit wasn't up to DiCaprio's standards, the film wouldn't be released at all. Uh, mind you, at this point, nobody has a contract or a production agent overseeing the treatment of Don's Plum. So everyone's pretty much in the dark as far as how this film is coming along. At that point, though, Topi and his manager decide, okay, well, maybe we should have a look at this movie. Uh, now bear in mind that he's the first, he and his manager are the first people to see the rough cut of the film beyond Wheatley and Rob and their editor. At the time, also important to consider is that not only does DiCaprio entirely outperform Maguire in Don's Plum, but that this was also at a time when McGuire's star was beginning to see a bit of a rise with films like The Ice Storm, Deconstructing Harry, and Pleasantville. And it was rumored that James Cameron was about to announce developing a Spider-Man movie, which caught the ear of Toby Maguire and his manager. So these are all elements that are cooking, sort of simmering, stewing, boiling over in the mind of Toby Maguire as all of this is going on. Meanwhile, Jerry Metters, an established studio executive, uh, became really intrigued with the film. To generate interest in distribution, Metters suggested uh, an advanced screening to the cast and crew as well as other executives and industry heavy hitters. DiCaprio crucially wasn't planning to attend the screening Which is an issue because Wheatley and Rob had promised that if the film wasn't up to his satisfaction, then it wouldn't be released. Uh, Metters, however, put out a press release about the upcoming screening, saying, not in the article, but saying to friends and apparently a lot of loudmouths in the industry, that if DiCaprio didn't approve of the feature, that, quote, at least Leo would know we have a voice in the press. That's going to be pretty important. So hang on to that detail. The screening itself, though, was a resounding success. DiCaprio was able to make it, and he responded really warmly to the film. He was reportedly rolling on the floor and high-fiving cast and crew. Uh, this quote from Wheatley again, quote, everything was better, man. In many ways, Don's Plum was a love letter to our friends. I just remember the buzzing after, and everyone was just in this elated state of shock. What a relief. Leo had done a complete 180, end quote. Uh, After the second screening to Miramax, Don's Plum was optioned, and uh, then it seemed like they were pretty much fast-tracked to becoming a pretty popular indie film, because Miramax was sort of, at the time, where you would go, uh, as an indie filmmaker, they were sort of like a Hollywood hub of of rising independent talent. So it's now... In the midst of all this, that McGuire asks to meet privately with Rob and with Wheatley. Reportedly, he offered to make them dinner and arrived with uh, Kraft mac and cheese and tofu hot dogs. Uh, according to Wheatley, Maguire began a long interrogation about assumed shady dealings surrounding the film until the tensions boiled over and he screamed, quote, I want Don's plum to burn, reportedly yelling so loud that the veins in his neck were bulging. After Rob had had enough and decided to go to bed, Wheatley attempted to soothe McGuire's concerns by suggesting that the worst thing that could have possibly been connected to the film was Metter's comment about, quote, having a voice in the press. Uh, Wheatley, again, quote, with that, I gave Toby everything that he needed, end quote. This resulted a few nights later in Rob and Wheatley being summoned to Kevin Connolly's house to meet with McGuire and DiCaprio to discuss the film yet again. McGuire alleged that Rob and Wheatley intended to pit the press against DiCaprio. This led DiCaprio and McGuire into berating Rob and Wheatley for hours, suggesting that their agents run Hollywood and that this film will never see the light of day. DiCaprio's lawyers sent what amounts to a cease and desist, causing Miramax to back out of distribution. David Stutman, the producer, decides to file a suit against DiCaprio for stymieing the film, resulting in a countersuit on the part of DiCaprio and Maguire. This at the same time that Titanic is coming out. So at this time, Leonardo DiCaprio has not only quite a bit of Hollywood cachet, but a small fortune that he can funnel into his legal defense. After this, Rob and Wheatley were approached by Dateline for a story about this lawsuit, Uh, at which point, because of the whirlwind of buzz and hype around Titanic, DiCaprio finally caved and his people reached out with a settlement offer. Now the meat of this settlement concerned international distribution. DiCaprio's team wanted the film banned not only in the United States and Canada, but specifically Japan, as DiCaprio had made a very profitable name for himself in the country before he did stateside via car commercials. So Leonardo DiCaprio was pretty big in Japan, uh, was pretty well reputed there, and kind of had a lot at stake, uh, or or so he felt. The film would go on to remain banned in the United States and Canada, but was allowed a conditional release in Japan provided that several edits were made to the film, particularly surrounding DiCaprio and McGuire's improvisation surrounding anal stimulation during masturbation. Apparently, that was one of their big issues with the film. Also, the property, uh, Don's Plum, the film itself, was responsible for all of these legal fees, which amounted to a loss of over $2 million in profits. But Rob and Wheatley finally had their film. So, Again, guys, they can't screen it in the US, can't screen it in Canada. They barely squeaked by getting Japan. Who do you think would pick up this film in Europe?
2: Oh, I read it on the Wiki
0: page. It turns out it's provocateur filmmaker and known asshole, Lars von Trier, Mm. who decided to pick up the film with his uh, Zentropa Productions, placing a bid for a European distribution, allowing the film its 2001 premiere in Berlin. Then, a Japanese distributor contacted the team with a $1 million offer, only to discover that another Japanese distributor had already secured the rights for the film for $175,000. Now, apparently, what happened here was that during production, Stutman, the producer, had sent a memo to the company confirming their offer, which, uh, you know, $175,000, Uh, which, due to arbitration when the film was stalled in production, guaranteed the company the rights to distribute the film in Japan. This meant that the entire $2 million legal battle over the rights to sell the film in Japan in effect cost the film $1,875,000. This also caused other international markets to devalue the film's distribution rights, costing the film further untold sums of money. Uh, After a majority of the international sales were then handed over to the film's lawyers because of their owed dues for the suit, the principal players were left with almost nothing. Uh, Dale Wheatley, the producer and uh, co-writer of the film, again, co-writer such as it were, uh, to this day claims that since shooting the film, he has personally made a sum of $180 from the film.
1: This is amazing. This is just
0: (laughs) wild. How is it able to still be up on YouTube? Uh, I don't know. I guess it's, it's... uh, sort of like a fair use thing or something, maybe. I really don't know how that works. It's been on YouTube for a couple of years. It's a really, really, I will say it's a really, really, really low quality image uh, on that video. It's maybe like, I wouldn't say like like 480 at the most. And you can kind of get a sense that like there were some shots and there is some shot composition. There's some cinematography in this movie that is kind of interesting, but you can't really make it out on that video, I will say.
2: Most of it's distracting. Like all of the shots in the like uh, the club with the burlesque dancer, like, like, there were some
0: shots
2: (laughs) shots from the ceiling. Like the guy is singing and the dancers are dancing and they're trying, like, you can tell that they're trying to create a mood, but Mm. the angles are so fucking distracting. It's like camera on the ceiling, camera at, at the stage, camera on a chair, camera like at someone's feet. And it's like, what are we supposed to be paying attention to? Clearly nothing because... This person didn't know what they were
0: doing, but I will say, because I, I watched this film twice and I, I promise I'll never watch it again. I would encourage, I would discourage people from watching it, but I would encourage them to see the first like 10 minutes for this acid jazz club sequence, because it's fucking bonkers. It's one of the craziest and most chaotic sequences I've seen in a really long time from a direction standpoint and from a content standpoint. There
2: were a couple I think I yeah there were a couple of close-ups of like people's faces that I thought were kind of cool. Like there's one shot in the diner where it's like from the back of someone's head looking like towards Toby Maguire's face and you can just sort of see half of his face and everyone's smoking cigarettes like the entire movie but mm-hmm. there's like a like there's a shot of him like smoking a cigarette but it's like half of his face or something I it was it looked it looked pretty cool. It was a moment where I was like, "Oh, okay. That's that's a thing." <laughs> so, so just to be clear, like we were saved
3: this travesty of a movie because of Toby Maguire concerned about not getting enough screen time or something along those lines and then a particular scene about anal stimulation during masturbation. Those those are the things that saved us.
0: I mean, those are the big kind of, as far as the court case is concerned, there, there are a lot of reasons why this movie wasn't released and in fact was banned in the US and Canada. It was largely because of DiCaprio's claim that he never understood this to be a full-length feature and wouldn't have agreed to it. There is Maguire, yeah, McGuire's Maguire, motivations are a good deal more complicated, I think. I mean, McGuire. I think, again, was the first person to see the rough cut of the film before even Leo had seen it. So I think, for me, I think that Maguire rightly understood that he was overshadowed by DiCaprio in a movie when he was trying his hardest to be in competition with him, despite their long friendship. And and also all of the personal details that he would have preferred be edited out of the film.
2: That's the thing. It's, it's really, I mean, from what I was reading, it was shot between 94 and 95 and wasn't released till 2000, or
0: like the... I think 95 and 96, but yeah.
2: Or 95 to 96 and the intention wasn't to release it or it wasn't complete till 2001. Something imagine, like that, yeah. Imagine looking back and being like 22 or something and then participating, or like maybe being like 23 and participating in a film when you were like, 18 or like 19 and you're you would be so embarrassed especially I mean maybe they dug it like maybe they're like oh this is great this is exactly like what I was like and it really captures that moment in my life but like most of the footage especially of DiCaprio and Maguire is so embarrassing and horrific and reveals like an inner core to them that maybe the public wasn't privy to and I'm sure that their agents were like wow, we're trying to sell like these sort of mainstream movies and you're about to participate in a movie that's actually going to show how much of a uh, immature (laughs) asshole you are and that's not going to look good.
0: I mean, I think that's definitely part of it because their agents were left in the dark about this pretty much up until the first cut of the film. But I don't know because like at a time, I mean, this this was a film heavily inspired by clerks. And that's a movie that doesn't paint anyone in a very flattering light either. This is definitely a 90s kind of thing with indie films of just exploring CD, the CD underbelly of mainstream America or like, a, you know, casual, the casual, quote unquote, banality of of Americana and everything. Um, but
2: they were playing versions of themselves. I mean, with yeah. Kevin Connolly, like trying to get an audition I feel like this really blurs the line between character and they have different names, but I assume they were basically playing versions of themselves, young, like teenage or in their early twenties actors, like just going out on a night, like who aren't like famous, you know, yet, but they're just like hanging out, trying to get, you know? Uh,
0: Yeah. Well, also unnecessarily tacking on a sort of, sentimentality to these characters, that there are deep, deeper levels to them via a bunch of very, very cliche character problems.
2: Yeah, right, they they tried to, they added some layers. They tried, but.
0: And so yeah, that, that in essence is why we didn't get the movie. I mean, I do feel bad for some of the people that wanted this movie to work and really put their hearts into it, um, which is gonna bring us now to the final chapter, that chapter five, the epilogue. Amber Benson continued acting, famously going on to play Tara McClay in the TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She has also since become a writer, director, and producer. Scott Bloom continued acting and went on to found the production company Argonaut Pictures in 2007. Kevin Connolly continued acting, including his role in the HBO series Entourage. Uh, He has also since earned several directing credits. Jenny Lewis has continued acting and fronting indie rock band Rilo Kiley, as well as releasing four solo albums. Director R.D. Robb went on to become executive producer of ABC's network sitcom, Sirens. David Stutman, the producer of the film, has never returned to filmmaking in any capacity. Toby McGuire continued acting and producing films, going on to play the iconic role of Peter Parker in Sam Raimi's Spider-Man films, as he obviously so wanted. Leonardo DiCaprio went on to win the Best Actor Academy Award in 2016 for his role in The Revenant and remains one of the most identifiable and celebrated actors in the world. And Dale Wheatley. So Dale Wheatley was essentially blacklisted. After his divorce in 2010, he met his current partner, who urged him to continue writing screenplays. Upon finally completing another work, his partner pitched it to a prominent producer who, though initially enthused about the script, discovered Wheatley's connection to Don's Plum and the whole debacle and withdrew. Wheatley eventually went on to create FreeDonsPlum.com, a web initiative urging viewers to seek out the film and decrying DiCaprio's involvement in derailing Don's Plum. Uh, He is now a freelance video producer. And finally, Todd Beckman, who I think may have the best sense of humor and perspective on this whole goddamn thing, remains aghast that Don's Plum is still so hotly debated. Uh, He has said, quote, the American cultural landscape has not been robbed because some people haven't seen it, end quote. In the end, it was uh, Beckman's father who sued David Stutman for the unpaid loan. He fronted the crew when beginning filming, resulting in a default ruling that Jerry Beckman, creator of the McDonald's Happy Meal and Monopoly game, retained all ownership rights of Don's Plum, both domestically and internationally. When asked what he would do with the filming rights following his father's passing and the film rights transferring to him, Todd Beckman added, quote, what I would really like to do is arrange a meeting with Leo and Toby and get the film canisters like in a trash can, light them on fire and just watch the reels burn to the ground. And that ladies and gentlemen is, is the sordid tale of Don's plum. One of the most, appropriately doomed productions in Hollywood history that I can think of, but a story that often goes untold. And one that I think, I don't know. I have my feelings about Dale Wheatley. I think that uh, to a degree, it's its a bummer that this is the hill he has to die on because I think the movie is bad, but it's also the only film he's ever been able to make because of industry uh, censorship and blacklisting. So I freely admit that I feel for the guy a little bit, even though I think the movie he made is largely trash, but it seems as though he bore the brunt of it. And uh, perhaps not unduly for uh, lack of planning and lack of understanding for for naivete of the industry. Uh, But at the end of the day, that probably shouldn't be enough to ruin a man's life. So I think it's, it's interesting in that regard. And I think it's important to talk about, especially because in the 1990s, as we've discussed, through Miramax and people like Harvey Weinstein, a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of indie filmmakers and outsiders were given a chance, as were they, but it seems as though they really didn't recognize the obligation of the opportunity at their feet. And that's largely why we
1: have the story of Don's Plum. Thank you for sharing that, Dave. I thoroughly, it's like it's like I'm a listener to my own podcast. That was amazing.
0: <laughs> it's just a wild story, yeah. Yeah, it's a wild really, uh, ride. A lot of... Uh, well, it's really nothing but hurdles. So in that sense, it's pretty interesting.
2: I'm glad I misunderstood the assignment and watched <laughs> it just to see what it was. Because I just couldn't believe all of like the young versions of all these people in my mind who are like, you know, A-list adult performers. And then it's like, oh shit, they were all awkward, terrible teenagers.
0: <laughs> all very flood, but privileged and powerful people who were handed the keys to a movie by directors and producers who didn't know what they were doing. And you wonder why it backfired. <laughs> uh, of course, we want to thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening as uh, as we discuss this movie again. I would not recommend it, but I would recommend the myriad articles that are available about it, as well as uh, The Curse of Don's Plum, that in New York Post documentary about it. Um, check out freedonsplum.com, uh, and give Dale Wheatley a shout. From what I understand, he pretty thoroughly polices content about this movie online. So, Dale, if you're listening, I did, uh, did mention your website. Uh, but aside from that, uh, yeah, just really a wild and insane story. We're going to be getting into some other really insane stories moving forward. Next week, we have a film that was borderline equally troubled, but at the same time, uh, (laughs) probably produced, uh, in in a unanimous opinion, much better results. So we'll be uh, discussing and dissecting some more production nightmares as we continue through this theme. But of course, thank you so much for listening. Check out all the other shows on Movie John uh, Podcast Network that we're a part of that we've discussed before. And uh, until then, hey, have a good whatever.